The fear is trying to protect you and you're afraid, but it's blocking you from sharing this information with other people. What's more important? You're not denying your fear or trying to push your fear into a box. You're saying, okay, it's definitely here and it's coming with me, but I'm continuing to move forward. Those little pieces add up. And as those wins add up, you're able to reference those successes when you're doubting yourself. Welcome to The Art of Speaking Up, a podcast that helps professional women access the limitless potential that lies within them. I'm your host, Jessica Guzik, and my mission is to help you find that spark inside you that has the power to transform your career in ways you may not have thought possible. I'm so excited that you're here. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Jess. I'm the host of this podcast. I've been hosting it now for almost two years, which is nuts, or at least it feels nuts to me. But I am so happy to be here. And I'm really looking forward to introducing today's guest because today's guest, Meg, has been on the podcast before. She was on the show back in January of 2019. And my conversation with her and the insights that she shared and just the level of depth that she brought when she answered my questions and when we were talking about mindset struggles really stayed with me. And I really wanted to talk to her again and go even deeper with her and dive all the way down into some of the topics that I know I really had a hard time with, especially earlier on in my career, and that may be coming up for you. And we cover a lot in here, but most of what we talk about centers around, you know, the two sides of the coin where one side is self-doubt and one side is self-confidence. And the experience of self-doubt is complicated. There are so many layers to it. And as you'll hear Meg talk about in this interview, a lot of the times the self-doubt that we're experiencing isn't necessarily based in reality. We're having this very subjective experience that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough. And when we're having that subjective experience and we're in that self-doubt, it feels very real to us, even though it is subjective. So when you think, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I shouldn't be in this role, I'm not doing well, those thoughts are not objective. They're not the truth. They're not true, but they feel true. And I think both sides of that coin are important. It's important to acknowledge that they're not true and remind ourselves that they are subjective and that we will always experience ourselves in a subjective way, as you'll hear us talk about, but also to remind ourselves that the experience of it feels very real and it feels very difficult. And it's something that requires a lot of heart and a lot of grit and a lot of psychological hustle just to get through. And that's a lot of what we touch on in this conversation. I am really excited for you to meet Meg. And with that, let's get into the conversation. And I hope you enjoy it. So my name is Meg Duffy. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I am a career coach for women in tech. Before this, I was the dean of the Grace Hopper program, which is a coding boot camp for women in New York City. Um, so I've been in tech for a little bit myself. And can you take us back to the start of your nine to five career and what you did at the very beginning and what was hard for you at the very beginning? <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Uh, so I always describe my career as being kind of a wiggly noodle because I began <laughs> in nonprofit arts and then moved into tech several years later. And when I started my first job after grad school, I, I didn't know anything. I felt like very incompetent in my role. So I was the archivist at a nonprofit arts organization. And I didn't know anything about the art form. My Photoshop skills, I felt were pretty poor. And the first day I showed up, I was just given a guide and thrown into the auditorium where I was shooting stills of show sets and editing them after hours. And so I just felt incredibly overwhelmed. It was also challenging because I knew that I needed to improve, but I had to figure that out on my own. No one was going to show me what to do. And I rarely got feedback on what I did well so it created this feedback loop where I felt like everything I was doing was garbage and I was reinforcing that. And it took a long time to unlearn those patterns. That's so interesting. Do you feel like you had self-awareness around it when you were in it? Or is it more looking back, you can see that you had that feeling of incompetence and that spiral? Looking back, I can definitely parse out the reasons why I felt the way I did at the time. I was incredibly in my feelings and incredibly harsh with myself. You know, I was so worried about failing at that job, whatever that happened to mean, and just not being successful again, whatever that happened to mean. But I didn't have any good definition for myself. I was just very worried about what other people thought I was uh, doing in that role. That's so fascinating. I really deeply relate to the way that you described that. And I don't know if this is something you connect with, but for me, I almost had this false mental model where there was sort of a right and a wrong and always a fear of not being in the right box. And it was only when I discovered that jobs and business and professional success is this massive blob of gray. And the more you can hang out in the gray, the more you grow and there isn't one right way. That's what helped me out of the paralysis. I don't know. Do you relate to that? Absolutely. I mean, I think going and getting another degree, like I was good at the concept of school. You know, I will read the things, I will participate in class, I will write the papers, I will get it done. There's not a lot of nuance and creativity in that model. And when you get out and you're in the working world, there are so many ways to do things. And I think my mind was still stuck in the, there's one way to do things and I know I'm not doing it right. Yeah, that is exactly what I experienced. And it takes a lot of like letting go and also having faith that you can try something and then wait to see if it works out and not getting the immediate feedback of knowing it was successful right away, not getting rewarded right away for changing your behavior and taking risks, but actually taking risks and then being brave enough to say, all right, I'm going to just sit back and see if see how this works out. Yeah, I mean, I think you just touched on something really important there, the idea of being rewarded, you know, waiting for that external validation to say, okay, you've done a good job. When in reality, you know, you could be working behind the scenes on something that no one sees. And if you're able to validate yourself and say, I have done a good job for me, um, I think that's a really big, important shift to be able to make. I totally agree. And it's so interesting, too, because I think sometimes when we're looking for the validation from other people, we think it'll make us feel better, but it's actually when we let go of that and do it for ourselves, for me, then I start building confidence. Like my brain wants to lie to me and tell me, oh, it'll only make you feel better if it comes from someone else. It quote unquote doesn't count if you reward yourself. But then I found that rewarding myself gives me this feeling of power in a way. And it's it's almost deceptively easy, you know, and it's something that I wish I had uncovered sooner. Yeah, because I feel like then when you're validating yourself, external validation can be very fleeting. 
But when you're able to validate internally, you know, you're building that foundation of confidence um, and you're able to carry that with you and reference it when that self-doubt comes into play. Totally. And then also rewarding yourself for trying even when you don't get a good outcome. So, you know, you shared that idea in a meeting and no one responded and there was dead silence. You can still choose to reward yourself for being brazen enough to voice this thing. Absolutely. Did you have moments or specific experiences that helped you start to unwind this idea of I'm not good enough and I don't know what I'm doing? You know, I think so many, so many different things. There were lots of little moments along the way, having a good therapist who could call me on my stuff, practicing rewriting narratives, even just the first step of pausing in the moment where I know a spiral of self-doubt is about to start and just giving it space, I think is really helpful. But all, all of those things together, I think, plus just years of practicing, you know, you're never really done with this stuff. Never. And I'm curious, as you became a career coach, and then I'm sure saw people going through their own mindset journey around their jobs. How did that change how you looked at your own early career experiences? Yeah, I think as a coach, so much of my job is to provide a different perspective and really challenge that singular viewpoint that people bring to the table. By being able to do that for other people, I started to practice with myself more and really questioning, okay, here's what I'm thinking and feeling in this moment. Is this actually true? It's a lot harder to do that for yourself, you know, because you are tied up in all of your emotions and feelings and stories that you tell yourself. But I did find with practice that I was able to question my own thoughts and behaviors in the moment and say, okay, I'm in this spiral of self-doubt and fear, but what is true in this situation? And it's tricky because one thing that I've been thinking about too is when you're in that moment of sort of separating from it and saying, okay, I have this part of me or this voice inside of me that's telling me this thing and you're trying to question it or make it more objective. For me, sometimes the voice itself says your process of questioning me is fundamentally wrong and you actually should be listening to me. So it's like as I try to create separation, it gets louder. And then I'm like, crap, now what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. That has been very challenging as well. You know, and I think I think sometimes I'm more effective at it for myself personally than other times. Something that has been useful is asking myself the question, okay, like what do I need in this moment? Because if the fear is coming from a place, there's something that's not being met, right? Like there's a feeling that's coming up and this need needs to be met. And if I can take a minute to articulate to myself, what's the need? Sometimes I'm able to find different ways to meet that need. Mm, that's so helpful. And I almost wonder if we could walk through a zoomed in example of it. So. I could give like a really concrete example of someone sitting in a meeting. I use this one all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of conversation happening. They know that they could and should be a part of it, but are feeling having trouble speaking up and feeling like maybe what they will say won't be good enough or just worried about how they'll be perceived. How would you, from kind of your coaching perspective, either if you were in that situation, take it apart for yourself or help someone take apart that experience? I mean, it can be really tricky to do in a live moment with no plan. And so what I will typically do with clients is to have us visualize, okay, you know that you're going to go into the meeting. 
you know what the topic is going to be about, you know the things that you want to say, what keys will help set you up for success? Maybe that's jotting some things down ahead of time. Maybe that's, you know, okay, I'm going to wait two minutes and then I'm going to put my hand up and say something. And I think also like anticipating too what the roadblocks will be. Maybe there's that one person that always likes to talk over everyone. And so putting together a plan of how am I going to handle that person? Maybe I'm amplifying what someone else said and that's more important in this meeting. Coming up with that set of activities that you're going to engage with in that meeting, I think can be really helpful because even if plan A doesn't go according to script, you've got a couple different options of, okay, if I can't get a word in edgewise, I can amplify. If I can't amplify, you know, I'll send an email afterwards. And so you're creating multiple goals and setting yourself up for success more in case plan A doesn't work. I like that. And I think it can be so helpful to just map those things out. And I love the idea of giving yourself options so that there isn't all of this pressure that like you have this goal and then you have another thing to get mad at yourself about, right? Because you didn't meet the one thing that you were hoping for. Yeah, because stuff comes up, you know, you might be in that meeting and it takes a totally different turn. And I think, you know, you're working towards the same outcome, the same feeling of, okay, I articulated what I needed to say. But there are many different ways to do that given the context that you get when you step into that meeting room. Totally. And it's so unpredictable. And I I feel like even if you're the one leading the meeting, if you're quote unquote sort of in control in the conversation, you can still lose it because of all the unpredictability and having, for me, it's almost having that playful attitude of like, whoopsie, (laughs) like, okay, this is happening versus that panicky energy makes it so hard to really stay with what's happening in the present moment and honestly ask yourself, what's the smartest thing to do next year? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think practicing it and visualizing it ahead of time gives you at least a safer setting to feel those feelings before you go live and you know you are leading that meeting and it goes off the rails and you're trying to quell that panic and keep that energy solid. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get your thoughts on this idea, I think of it as a little bit of a roller coaster of self-confidence, where I think often in the process of building confidence in ourselves, we have successes, we have wins, and then we get knocked back. And there might be these specific people, specific situations where as soon as we're in them, it feels like everything we've collected starts falling away like sand. And I'm curious your thoughts on that and how you try to stay with yourself or with a coaching client through all of those ups and downs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny in terms of my own definition of confidence. I think it has changed over time. For a long time, I felt like being confident meant getting to a place where you just didn't feel any fear. You know, the fear is out the window, doesn't matter. I'm just going to do this. But that's just not realistic. Most of the things that I do in my business cause a little bit of fear all the time. And so through that experience, my definition has evolved more to encompass feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And the confidence bit is taking that leap and trusting in yourself and your abilities to really help you be successful. You can't do that overnight. You know, you can't just throw yourself in the deep end. It really is a muscle that you build over time. And those early days of practice can feel just as uncomfortable as going to the gym when you've taken a long break. You know, it will be challenging. But I think those little pieces add up 
And as those wins add up, you're able to reference those successes when you're doubting yourself. So in terms of you know specific work situations or people that trigger you, something that I've found helpful is, again, outside of an active situation, really breaking down the fears and feelings that are coming up. So thinking about, all right, what do I think is the worst thing that will happen? How likely is that outcome? Does this situation remind me of a previous situation? And is it actually those feelings that are being triggered here? And again, thinking about what need needs to be met here, even if it's something that you have to do yourself because that other person just isn't capable of doing it. And that that can be hard. I love that. And I love the idea of redefining confidence in that way. I find it so empowering, especially because I think it's very natural if someone is struggling with self-confidence to worry that they might cap themselves or limit their ability to pursue greater roles in advance if that's something that is part of what they want for their future. And the way that I look at it, which I think is very congruent with how you define confidence, is it is the willingness to actually face that struggle wherever it's coming up that actually builds your strength as a leader because it requires so much humility and self-awareness and emotional intelligence to actually work through that, that by the time you have allowed yourself to step through those things and face them, you have this strength that is so much, like so many layers deeper than what you would have had if that had never come up and if you had just kind of skated through and glided through. And I think it's important for people to recognize that so that when a struggle does come up, they don't say, okay, this means that I'm going to fail, but they actually realize, oh, this is me being presented with an opportunity to expand into something greater and actually show myself that I have the maturity and the resilience to take what's coming up and figure out how I want to use this as a place where I'm going to get stronger. Absolutely. And I think moving through that fear really alchemizes the fear and allows you to come out on the other side. You know, you can sit in a feeling for a very long time just by virtue of not doing anything else and just engaging with that emotion. But when you acknowledge, okay, I'm afraid right now, and then move forward with another activity, it's almost like your brain can't focus on that fear as much anymore. It has to focus on the task at hand. And so you're not denying your fear or trying to push your fear into a box. You're saying, okay, it's definitely here and it's coming with me, but I'm continuing to move forward. Yes, absolutely. I fully agree with that. And it's so empowering because once you truly prove to yourself that you have that skill, which is that I feel this enormous pull backwards and I want to retreat and I'm able to not retreat, then it starts opening up doors and possibilities because you see, oh, well, I did that one thing. Like I opened scary door number one and I did it. And now that means I can open like scary door number two, three, four, five, six. Which door is exciting to me? Where do I want to go next? And I think that that's a really special feeling. Absolutely. And I want to get a little bit more of your thoughts on our relationships with ourselves and self-criticism and self-judgment, because I think that's something that we're all constantly dealing with. So I guess I'd start by asking you either about your experience with it or what you've observed with clients in terms of how it comes up and just how you think about it. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I still struggle with this. I think that is everyone has an inner critic. I, I think I've been able to turn the volume down on mine more than usual, uh, you know, than years past, but I don't think it is ever going to go away. And again, you know, it's taken me years of practice, uh, going to therapy, rewriting narratives. Um, you know, it takes work to pay attention to that stuff. I think, you know, the, the thing, the conversation that I have with clients the most is reminding them that what they're feeling is actually pretty normal. It's just insidious because self-judgment is invisible to other people. You know, if you don't talk about it, nobody sees it. And so there's so many people out there that you can idolize and think are your role models. And it's, it's very easy to pretend like they don't have an inner critic because it's just not visible. You know, I think that moving through that pattern, a great first step is just being able to catch yourself when you're starting to beat yourself up because just being able to pump the brakes and say wait a minute i'm doing that thing again creates an opportunity for you to tell a different narrative or distract yourself or go in a different direction and i'd say you know for folks who are struggling with that right now that's a great first step to practice is it very hard yes <laughs> am i perfect at it absolutely not but it opens the door to future conversations with yourself that are much more kind and less judgmental that makes so much sense. And once someone has consistently cultivated the self-awareness where they're able to identify it, do you have any ways that you like to work on shifting to a different inner narrative, a different voice, a different set of thoughts? Yeah. So the best advice I received on this a couple years ago was talk to yourself like you're talking to a friend. Because you will say things as your inner critic that you would never say to another human being, another animal, like anything. Inner critics can be ruthless. And so when I find myself getting a little bit grumpy, you know, I'm less than my best, I'll try to step out of myself and put on the tone of, okay, I'm talking to my best friend. What advice would I give her in this moment? And it doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue. Sometimes I need to take a walk. Sometimes I need to take a couple deep breaths or just step away from myself for a minute before I'm able to talk to myself. Yeah, it's it's hard to unhook from it. And it's so weird how we don't realize the cruelty of our own inner critic. And it's for me, it's been a very interesting and sad and difficult experience to actually look at that because it's sort of it's weird to see this part of yourself that is really mean to yourself. And it almost feels like this foreign thing because it's so different than for me who I am at the core. And yet it's so loud and so present, which is what fascinates me about it. Yeah. I kind of see it as like, it's the, it's like sitting on my shoulder and like, it's an advocate for my perfectionism which is like really counter to like how I want to be as a human. Just like, okay, I want to be like loving and kind to people. But the perfectionism is like driving me to, you know, rag on myself all the time. And so it's been unraveling that inner judgment, but also that need to execute perfectly, to do the thing perfectly to, because I think that's, that's where my root really comes from. It's like, okay, if it's not excellent, then what are you doing? And the answer is a lot of things. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a pretty big spectrum on how you can execute. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think the other piece to this, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, 
is that there is in some ways a leap of faith required when you are separating from it because it has been with you all this time. You've gotten so used to it and it has such a consistent narrative. It's almost like reliable in this way and almost trustworthy and that it's always the same, right? And you always sort of know where it's leading you. And then that pivot away can feel so dramatic and like such such a huge departure and to work up the courage to actually trust yourself enough to say like this is good enough or I'm not going to listen to this or I'm going to speak up or I'm going to push myself to do the thing you have this feeling of oh my gosh what if I'm wrong you know like and what if this doesn't work and what if I should have listened all along and I think those moments can be scary I think that's why a coach or another perspective can be really helpful because doing that alone it's possible for sure but these are hard things to do as a human being. Absolutely. And you're so right, because ultimately the inner critic is trying to protect us, right? You know, it's trying to keep us safe, but the safeness is also very small. There is risk outside, but it can be tough to weigh the consequences when that inner critic is so aggressive. So I agree with you, you know, talking to a friend, talking to a coach can really be a helpful way to cut through the self-talk and see the truth you know, and the truth can mean different things to different people, but especially when you're building confidence, you know, it can be easy for folks to say, you know, I don't have any skills or I don't have any talents, but maybe that's just the framing that you're putting on it. If the the skills or talents have to be, okay, I have not won an Oscar. I'm not a CEO. Okay. Not all of us can say those things, but other smaller things that you've done can have really big impacts on people's lives. And so thinking about the different ways you have helped people, have taken risks, um, I think can be really critical in building that muscle. I agree. And the other thing that can be so tricky, I think, when it comes to letting go of your inner critic in a professional environment is there is pressure and your livelihood depends on it. And so many women care about the career that they're building and their reputation. So there is this reality that all of us in these work environments are in, which is that I want to perform. And it's sort of finding for each one of us how we exist in that space without our inner critic and how we find it's again that gray area of, you know, there are expectations, there is this culture and this way of doing things, and things need to be good, and we want things to be a success. And it's really finding how that's going to intersect then with the version of you that isn't driven by fear and perfectionism. And I think that's like this insane like balance beam to walk down all the time without falling. And that's why it's sort of, I guess, something that you, we all have to have like a lot of self-compassion around because it's, it's a balancing act, truly. Absolutely. And I think you, it can be really challenging, especially in times like these where you know, you're working really hard, you're trying to do your best, you're having your, you know, you want your reputation to be solid, and then you get laid off, you know, and there's no, that's not a function of you not doing your job well, you know, there's so much outside of your control. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as well is when the job goes away, you still have worth as a person. And that's not any judgment on you because you've lost your job or things have transitioned. Like, Things happen out of your control. And so balancing your own desire to excel in your job, it's also important to acknowledge that sometimes things won't go your way. And that doesn't mean that you don't have value. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's it 
is so destabilizing to have things shaken up in that way because I think when we're not in a crisis mode or even when a company's doing well and not reorging and not laying people off, um, we get very comfortable. And I think it's so easy to forget then what it feels like when like if things start earthquaking beneath you and you're thinking, holy cow, like this job is just gone. Like all of this stuff that I built and had, it just went away. Uh, that feeling is scary and it's disorienting. It's very hard to process too. And I know times when I've been you know, in companies that were going through massive shifts like that, I realized like looking back on some of it that I never grieved all the sadness and the pain because that's not really something people talk about, but it's this huge emotional experience for me it was. And it is not easy to move through at all when you are in the middle of that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in these situations, being able to lean on that bedrock of confidence is really important because it gives you a foundation of, okay, that got taken away and I need to feel these feelings and grieve. But I also know that I've made it right in the past and I'm going to make it right again. And I'm going to figure out a solution. And that can be, that can be a helpful counterpart to make that situation a little bit lighter when you are you know, in tandem processing that grief and loss. Absolutely. And I think what you're talking about is so important. And I see it as this idea of agency and this way of viewing ourselves in the world such that I control, not I control outcomes, but I am an instigator of outcomes. And I think that it can be difficult to shift into that space because I think when we are in fear and dealing with that inner critic, it feels like the world owns us. And I'm interested in sort of what you've seen, you know, because I know that you help women with finding jobs and really building that career. So what you've seen in terms of them making that shift and realizing, okay, A, I have what it takes and B, I'm the one driving this car. I get to decide what to do and I can go out and take steps and I can make things happen. Yeah. You know, one of my one of my clients comes to mind. So when she came to me, she had been in her job for a while. She had, I would say, like a pretty terrible relationship with her boss. It was like a toxic situation. And she didn't really have a lot of confidence to speak of. And this person had done incredible things in the past. But based on her day-to-day -day work situation, she'd almost forgotten about those achievements. And over the course of our work together, we were able to bring those up, remind her that she had done all of these great things, and actually help her articulate that the relationship with her boss was unhealthy. You know, that wasn't a thing that I told her, but over the course of the conversations, she was able to realize that. And once she did, she really experienced a shift. She was able to recognize that that relationship wasn't healthy. She wanted something different. And from that moment, she was able to move forward by controlling the things that she had agency over. You know, you can't control if a company is going to hire you, but you can control your applications, who you talk to, what research you do before you go in for an interview. And she really doubled down on the things that she could control in that scenario and went off and got a job that was great for her. You know, she's in a much better place now. Oh, I love stories like that. And I think that also brings us to the other piece that I wanted to get your thoughts on, which is being blind to our own gifts and that really fascinating process of sort of 
taking off the self like the self criticism glasses and then putting on the glasses where you really truly see, whoa, I did that thing. I'm good at this. I want to hear all of your thoughts on that because I think that that's so important. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I am working with a client and we're going through that list of accomplishments and achievements, an important question to ask is who's talking? You know, when you have a judgment about a particular gift or an accomplishment and you downplay it, who's actually speaking in that situation? And the answers can be pretty interesting. Sometimes it's a parent who didn't necessarily believe in your talents. And so lots of times, in addition to our own narrative, we'll have other narratives wrapped up in that bundle. And so in addition to listing out your achievements and owning them, it's important to pay attention to the other voices that get bound up within that inner critic as well. And now we're going to talk about your book, which I'm so excited Yay. to talk about. <laughs> Thanks. So we'll start with, tell us what it is. <laughs> yes. Uh, so my book is called Find Your Way Forward. And it's really a step-by-step -step guide to help you break down the big question of what do I want to do with my career? Um, that is way too large of a question for any human to break down. And so it's a series of exercises, essays, and different guides that you can go through to break those questions down, uncover insights, and ultimately culminates in different resources that you can use to move forward. Oh, I'm so excited. And I'm so curious to hear about your journey of writing this book. You did mention that you learned a lot about yourself. And I could see that sentence when I was reading it in your email, just like bursting <laughs> with insight. So I have to ask you, whatever you want to share about this process of creating this and putting it out into the world and what you learned about yourself. Sure. Uh, one thing that I learned is writing a book is definitely a marathon and not a sprint. <laughs> Um, you know, I think in the beginning, I was really going gangbusters. I was so excited to write the essays. I was hammering away at those exercises. The writing piece definitely felt like my strong suit. But somewhere along the way, someone told me that when you write a book, you basically write three books because the first one is trash. <laughs> and so when I got the first one back with tons of edits, I started to doubt myself a little bit. Um, the design totally changed. So I'm not a designer by trade. And I ended up learning in design and designing the book myself. I was very out of my element. So I was getting lots of notes on that. Lots of the content had to be changed and moved around. And after a few days of wrestling with InDesign, I really started to worry. You know, my perfectionism was creeping in, fear was running high. And I just started getting really worried about if I'm being honest, like what other people would think. I'm putting this work out in the world and I was afraid of judgment. I was afraid of, you know, what if people don't like the design? If they can tell that I'm not a designer? Is my marketing plan good? And the thing that I really had to root down into was this belief in the book itself. Did I think this book could help people? Yes. Was I proud of the content? Yes. So shelving it was not an option. And even when it launched in the middle of COVID-19, you know, it came out in the middle of April, I knew that delaying the launch was just an excuse, you know, because so many people were losing their jobs at that point in time. It was actually a really important resource to put out in the world. So I've really got to credit the other folks who helped me. You know, I had lots of friends and family members uh, giving edits, cheering me along the way, and just being able to say, hey, this book is coming out on this date was very useful. 
because when you're doing a project for yourself, the deadline can be whenever. And that's a lot of freedom, but also like not enough specificity for you to execute on that. Yes. And also an infinite, like infinite room for excuses. (laughs) (laughs) Right. This thing is coming out in 2025. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I'm really fascinated by this process that I think we experience as humans where we share something that we've made. And I think there's this universal feeling whether it's something we've written, whether it's a work of art, or it could even just be an idea that feels sort of like something we haven't shared before. And it's really honestly showing what's inside our hearts and our minds. It's that process of exposing it and saying, everyone, look at this thing that is literally a piece of myself that can feel so, so scary. Absolutely. Well, because if you get judgment on it, it feels like, oh, this is a judgment of myself. Yeah. And so it can be tough to separate that criticism out. And, you know, I've gotten lots of feedback that has been really useful and helpful. The content that I put out is not perfect, but there are ways that I can iterate on that in the future. Mm. Is there something that you said to yourself or something that you held on to in the moments where you were feeling the fear that might that someone else listening might be able to bring into whatever struggle they're dealing with right now? Yeah, I mean, I think a big catalyst for writing the book was I am only one person. I can only coach so many people. And so I really wanted to distill what I do in a session with another person into something that was more accessible. And so when that fear did pop up, I tried to frame it as The fear is trying to protect you and you're afraid, but it's blocking you from sharing this information with other people. What's more important? And at the end of the day, I decided it's okay to be afraid, but you need to put this out there anyway because people need to use it. Ah, that's incredible. And where can we find the book? Although I already know because I already bought my copy for everyone (laughs) else listening. (laughs) Yeah. So you can find info on me and my book at www.megduffy.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram at, and Twitter at futureproofmeg. Okay, wonderful. And I'm, I'll link all of that in the show notes. So we're going to go into the closing questions. I'm really excited to ask you this first one as a career coach. This is such a perfect question for you to answer. But I've been asking guests to share tips for listeners who want to build confidence or take control of their careers. And I've been asking to share one that's sort of like a one-year horizon, a one-month horizon, and a one-week horizon. So I'll start with the year horizon. What is something someone could do or think about on a one-year time frame to begin moving their career in the direction they desire? Yeah, I'd say the biggest one is build your community. And I define that as different than networking. You know, I feel like networking gets a very transactional rep. Building community is really finding people who want to learn and grow in the same ways that you do. And that's huge no matter what stage of your career you're in. Now we're all stuck inside, but there's definitely ways that you can build community on the internet. Organizations uh, like Ladies Get Paid, Tech Ladies, Alpha, the Girl Boss organization, they're all places where you can join their online chapters and ask questions, share information, and make friends. That support is very critical, especially if you don't get it at your current job. And what can someone do over the next month? I'd say it ties into my this week, but we'll get to that. I'd say make time to think. Because career insights don't just hit you like lightning. They really do take concerted effort. 
So if you're able to take a walk or take some time away from the computer and just think about one question at a time. So maybe today it's, what do I like about my job? What would I change? What do I want to learn? How do I envision my days? And just making that time, even if nothing immediately comes, to make space for those insights to come through is really valuable. Mm, okay, now the week. So the week, this week, I would encourage folks to just audit your time and your to-do list and see where you can do less. It's very easy for stuff to get put on our plates, or I struggle with this a lot, really prioritizing things and clearing things that aren't as important but are very urgent. It can be easy to overload ourselves and take on things that we don't actually have to. I like using, I'll make it my to-do list, and then I'll use an Eisenhower matrix. You can just Google that to see what it looks like. But it helps you sort your priorities into different quadrants. And you can figure out, okay, what can I delegate to other people? What can I give away? What doesn't have to happen now? I think that exercise in conjunction with making space to think about your career is very helpful. And the next question is about a theme that I've been exploring, which is this idea that we have these really lofty goals often. So I want to become more confident. I want to show up with more strength or power. And for me, and I love exploring how these big goals, they get created in these little tiny moments, these micro decisions. And I've been loving asking guests to share a tiny moment in their lives or their careers that have really represented one of those tiny decisions in the direction of essentially becoming the person that they want to be? No, that's a great question. It's funny because the roots of my coaching business actually go back to that very first nine to five. So when I was that archivist role, I had an intern that helped me with photo shoots and I loved that intern. So when it came to a time to hire a new one, I wanted to be involved with that process. And I ended up taking charge of resume screening for both that role and a couple of other positions that we were hiring in the department at that time. And by reviewing so many of those resumes, I really developed a clear sense of what made a good resume. We joked about it, but the seeds of the business were actually planted in that first job because I saw so many really bad resumes and I wanted to help folks do a better job of telling their stories so they could land that interview. Oh, I love that. And the last two questions, the classic closing questions, um, you've already been on once, so I'll tweak the question about the name of the show just slightly to ask what you would advise someone who is becoming aware that they are having lots of ideas, lots of value come into their brain that isn't being shared with the world. They're not sharing it at work, in meetings, conversations. What would you say to that person? Yeah, you know, I think there's lots of ways to speak up. And I think by virtue of acknowledging that you have those ideas coming up, you've already got the first step, right? Because it's getting clear on what you want, what you believe, what you think. The next step is articulating those things to yourself and others. But there's lots of half steps in between that you could do as well. If you have ideas and you don't feel comfortable sharing them at work, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe that's actually fodder for a side project or a volunteering opportunity, you know, that allows you to have more control over that idea. And so that's a very powerful way to be able to speak up and take full control over your idea instead of, you know, maybe having to give it away and compromise. And so there's lots of different ways that you can put your ideas out there. 
And the final question was inspired by the same thing that inspired the show, which is that I wanted to speak to any woman out there who is struggling with self-confidence, being very hard on herself, and really struggling to, you know, as we talked about, see her gifts and the, the true level of her talents and what she has to bring to her career. And so I love to give this last space to the guests to speak to anyone who is dealing with self-doubt, feeling difficult feelings, or just looking to become more empowered. So I'll turn it over to you to share whatever is most important to you. Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the idea of comparison, especially since we are at home all the time. And I feel like there's definitely a mindset of using pandemic time productively. If you're not coming out of this with three new languages and a sourdough starter under your belt, then you haven't used that time properly. And so I just want to remind folks that like, it is a pandemic. If you're struggling to feel confident in this new remote working environment, you're working at home in the midst of a great global crisis. You know? And so a way to practice that kindness with yourself now is to not be as hard on yourself if you're not busting out a new project this week. It's okay to take breaks. It's okay to sit with yourself and actually sitting with yourself might have a really powerful impact because some of those feelings surrounding your confidence and self-worth may start to bubble up and they might be uncomfortable but being able to sit with them and listen to them can be really useful and a great way for you to move forward thank you so much for listening to my conversation with meg i loved interviewing her both times i found her very insightful and I just really deeply related to and connected to everything that she shared and I hope that it was the same for you. I'm going to put her website and the link to her book down below in case you want to check it out and support her work and I wanted to thank you so much for listening. There was a lot of talk in this interview about self-doubt and I know it can be a really difficult thing to struggle with. It's something that I have really struggled with and it it still comes up, but I've gotten much, much better at recognizing it and managing it. But if you do struggle with it, just remember that it's normal. Remember that there's nothing wrong with you. Remember that this is just a part of your human experience and it's part of everyone's human experience. Every human has situations where they don't feel great about themselves, where they're in a tough spot where they're being pushed to their limits and where showing up the way they want to feels really, really hard. There's really nothing wrong with that. And it really just comes down to how you want to grow and shift and change in tiny ways. So that is just my push for you to not get discouraged if some of these topics apply to you and to know that you really can change and that you really can learn to trust yourself and not only trust yourself, but eventually feel confident and feel powerful over time time. It does take time and it does take commitment and it does take the belief that you will be able to get to the point that you want to get to, but I promise it is entirely possible for you. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I would love to connect with you. So you will find all of my contact information down in the show notes. You'll also find a link to join the free Facebook group, um, a link at the bottom in the free resources section to sign up for the Art of Speaking Up newsletter, which is about to get started. You will find a link to get my free ebook, The Smart Ambitious Woman's Guide to Assertiveness in the Workplace. You will find a lot of different links down there. So definitely check it out. 
And I hope you're doing amazing. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. You are wonderful. And I'll catch you next week. Bye.